Good morning. Am I on? I think I am. Okay, yeah. Let's try that again. Good morning. My name is Alex, and I serve as lead pastor here at Courtright, and I want to add my word of welcome to what Allison said at the beginning of the service. Also, just a reminder, uh, as the kids leave for Sunday school, there's youth Sunday school today as well. So if you're here and you're in high school, um, you're welcome to join the youth Sunday school class. So this morning, we're looking at the part of the Apostles' Creed where it says that Jesus ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Over the past six weeks, we've made our way through the early part of the Creed. We've seen how it gives us a summary of the essentials of what the Bible teaches about Christian faith. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. So that's where we've come from. And as we traveled through those opening lines of the creed, we observed there's a shape to the story that the creed tells. It starts in heaven with God the Father Almighty who created the universe. It starts with the big picture. It starts with God transcendent and distant, quite unlike us, completely other. And then the creed flows down. It descends into the tiniest embryo with the conception of a human being and the slow nine months leading to the birth of Jesus. Then we have a different kind of descent, a descent into suffering and a descent into a separation of the Son from the Father, who were in perfect harmony. And last week, up from the grave he arose. We had the joy of the resurrection as God's victory over death and evil through Jesus Christ. But the creed doesn't stop there. Jesus ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. The creed seems to to take us right back up to where we started. And this is the present for us as Christians today. This is how we as the church experience Jesus. Or is it? We have lots of questions about this line of the creed, I think, as we reflect on who Jesus is today. Where is he, for one thing? What is he up to? And why did he have to leave? So this morning we have two readings from the Gospel of Luke and from the book of Acts. And both of the readings were written by Luke. So the first comes from the very end of his Gospel. We're going to pick it up right where we left off last week. The second is from the beginning of the second volume of Luke's story of Jesus, the book of Acts. I don't know what kind of practice you're into when it comes to quiet time, when it comes to reading scripture and prayer, but I often do Lectio 365 as part of my morning quiet time. And one aspect of Lectio 365 is that before scripture is read, You're asked to listen for a word or a phrase in the reading that the Holy Spirit may have for you in a special way. And I found this to be a powerful practice through which I've gotten into the habit of hearing 
the Spirit's direction and prompting. So as we read this morning from Scripture, I encourage you to do the same thing. Would you, would you pray with me and ask the Holy Spirit for that guidance? Dear God, Holy Spirit, we've come here this morning from all kinds of different circumstances. Some of us are really scattered, maybe even distraught about something in our lives. Others of us are at relative peace. And yet, it doesn't matter where we've come from. We need you, and we need your presence. We need you to speak the words that I'm about to read to us. We need you to impress them on our hearts. We need you to seal all of the truth and grace of who you are, Jesus, within us so that it can flow out of us. So guide us this morning into the truth of your word, we pray. Amen. So reading Luke 22, verses 44 to 53, which is to the very end of the gospel. Jesus said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. And from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, "'Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit.' Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. 
So the ascension is in the creed for a reason. But I think it's fair to say that as Protestant Christians, we have neglected the ascension. Over the past three weeks, we've covered the parts of the creed that get the most attention in the life of the church, our church. We have special days set aside for them at Christmas, on Good Friday, and at Easter. But we tend to forget the ascension. Now, if you grew up Catholic or maybe Eastern Orthodox or in a Protestant church that has higher liturgy, maybe you have had the experience of celebrating Ascension Sunday, which usually happens in May, 40 days after Easter. But most of us who have grown up and are currently in the evangelical church, the Protestant church, we tend to forget the Ascension. I think we find it a little weird, this floating off to heaven on a cloud. But it's not weirder than someone being raised from the dead. So the ascension takes the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And what it does is it makes them come alive powerfully and personally in your life. You can think of it this way. Some of you know that I'm a pretty big Leafs fan. Now, the joke is, and I have friends, benighted Habs fans, some of them, who tell it every fall. The joke is that Leafs fans at this time of year start to plan the Stanley Cup parade. But no, we don't. We brace ourselves for more heartache and suffering. That's the truth. But let's pretend, just pretend with me, that this is the year the Leafs are going to win the cup. <laughs> Suspend your disbelief, just for a moment. Picture it. You watch it on TV, and you see it happen. You know it's true. You believe it. That is the resurrection without the ascension, okay? It's good. But now imagine not just knowing the Leafs won the cup, but picture yourself in the parade with millions of other people. And Austin Matthews reaches down and pulls you up onto the float <laughs> to stand with him and all the other Leafs. He even has you over to his place for dinner to celebrate. And you see how his cup and yours overfloweth. Yes, I did just compare Austin Matthews to Jesus, I think. <laughs> but work with me. That immediate, intimate experience of victory, of joy, that is what Jesus and his ascension can do for you and your faith. It's a powerful, personal, life-changing experience of what could otherwise be something that's just in your head just correct doctrine. So this morning, we're going to ponder the meaning of the ascension by looking at how it, first of all, crowns Jesus as our king, secondly, positions him to be our priest, and third, enables him as our prophet to send us out as empowered witnesses to his gospel. It makes all the difference in the world for you to see Jesus as your ascended king, your ascended priest, and your ascended prophet. I 
Our reading in Luke 24 comes right after Jesus did something strange and quite ordinary. He ate a piece of broiled fish. We heard about this last week when Justin preached on an embodied resurrection. Jesus, a number of times, deliberately shows his disciples that he was still human after the resurrection. But now he's going to take all that humanity and walk right into the presence of God the Father Almighty and sit down on the throne at his right hand. When Queen Elizabeth died, King Charles immediately became king. But the next day, Charles went through something that I don't think we heard a lot about. It was a formal ceremony marking his ascension to the throne. And to do that, he actually sat down on a special chair in Buckingham Palace, the throne. But the truth is that anyone can ascend to the throne. It literally means to walk up some steps and to sit on a chair. All you have to do is evade security, you know? (laughs) But in this case, I think we realize that that's not the real meaning of ascension. To ascend to the throne of the United Kingdom means more deeply that you change your relationship to everyone who is a UK citizen. Now we know that God does not actually live in the heavens because the word heavens in the Bible means the sky and much more. It refers to the whole universe. So God isn't up there in some kind of heavenly penthouse suite. He relates to us more the way an author of a play might relate to its characters. He is completely outside of and beyond our reality. That's what heaven stands for. We cannot relate to God until he takes the step of writing himself into that play, into the action. He enters the story of our lives from completely outside of it. When it says in verse 51 of Luke 24 that he was taken up into heaven, it means he now has a completely new relationship to the whole universe. The scripture uses certain language to convey this. It says he's on the throne, which means that he's able to take and apply all the benefits, all that he's accomplished everywhere and to everyone. So in John 20, John's account of the resurrection, Mary hugs Jesus. She's overjoyed to see that he's alive. She holds on to him and she won't let go. And he tells her not to. And you might think he's telling her not to because he has this holy resurrected body that she can't touch. Maybe it's dangerous even, but that's not it at all. Jesus is saying, let me go, let me ascend. And where that leads to is that you will never be able to lose me again. If I stay here, if I let you hold on to me, it'll be one place at one time. But if I ascend, you and the whole world will get me and all my goodness, my salvation, anytime and all the time. We see in Acts 1, the disciples really wanted to know what was going on. And so 
they asked Jesus when he was going to overthrow the Romans and become the king of Israel. That's what they thought he was about still, somehow, after 40 days with Jesus. And so he rebukes them. They thought it was going to be a Jewish kingdom that he'd come to inaugurate. And in verse 8, Jesus turns around and says, look, I'm not just talking about Jerusalem. I'm talking about Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. He says, I'm not just talking about one cultural group having a kingdom, but all people everywhere. I love how Isaac Watts puts this in one of his greatest hymns. He writes, Jesus shall reign where ere the sun desert successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. Jesus says, if I ascend, you and the whole world will get me and my goodness anytime and all the time. That's what the reign of the ascended king means. But my second point is that Jesus is also our ascended priest because he's now in a position to advocate for us with his heavenly father. The author of Hebrews puts it like this. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. So let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The whole book of Hebrews portrays Jesus as our ascended priest, as the one who knows us, who has suffered alongside us, and who can represent us to God his Father. I love how Louis Burkhoff describes this role that Jesus plays. And I, I remember where I was when I read this part of his systematic theology. I don't know if you've ever been moved to tears by systematic theology before, but um, this gets me every time. Burkhoff writes, it's a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us even when we are negligent in our prayer life, that he's presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds and which we often neglect to include in our prayer life, that he prays for our protection against dangers of which we are not even conscious and against the enemies which threaten us, though we do not notice it. He is praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victorious in the end. And so when we are at a point in our lives, and you may be there right now, where we are not praying at all, or where we are really struggling to pray, Jesus fills in those gaps. Maybe you're someone who has a hard time relating to the emotional dimension of Christian faith. All these songs we sing about intimacy with God and loving Jesus and friendship with Jesus, even this morning singing, Lord, I need you, how I need you. Maybe that is something that doesn't come naturally for you. And if you're not feeling it, that is okay. Because Jesus is your priest and he's feeling it for you. He's praying it for you. 
Now, I want to be clear here that I want you, I want all of us, I want myself to experience that closeness with Christ and to know him better. I hope you want that too. And it's not simply going to fall into your lap. But you don't have to measure up by having a certain experience of Jesus because it's not up to you. It's up to Jesus because he has done it. By his death at the cross, he has opened a new and living way for us to draw near to God the Father. He has done it, and as our ascended priest, we see clearly that he is continuing to do it. All the time, every day, every moment, he intercedes, he represents, he is thinking of us, making up the difference, bridging the gap. And it's important as we come to see Jesus as our advocate in that way, that we not see him as our supporter and God the Father as our judge, from whom we may need to be protected even. In the Old Testament, God the Father is famous for his mercy and his loving kindness. I think it's better to picture the father and son as being like two coaches conferring after a game. They want us to excel. They want us to be the best we can be. Maybe you can think of Jesus as what's known as a player's coach because he is human. He continues to be fully human sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and he can empathize with us in a particular and unique way. The Father loves us with the same love as the Son. Jesus, as our ascended priest, invites us to approach God's throne of grace with confidence. He gives us that peace, that hope. Jesus is also our ascended prophet, and this is my third point. He taught with the most incredible authority, you can read that in the Gospels, to the point where the disciples said to him, when everyone else was abandoning him, they said, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Jesus imparted the kind of truth that liberated people, that captivated them. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And so he invites us to trust his wisdom, to relinquish our right to determine our own future, to come under his teaching and his truth, to not conform to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That's the kind of freedom he offers. But now he's gone. He's ascended. Does this mean that his prophetic teaching ministry is over? No, I don't think so. Partly because he sends the Holy Spirit to empower us. And we're going to be focusing on the Spirit in the second half of the Creed, starting in two weeks' time. But for now, look at verse 6 with me for a moment. The apostles asked Jesus, will you now establish the kingdom? But Jesus says right back to them, you will be my witnesses. They're asking, will you? And he's replying, no, will you? Jesus says, don't look to me for this. He says, I'm sending you out. You are my representatives. You are my witnesses. You're the teachers. 
you have this prophetic ministry from me. If you're a Christian and you have the opportunity, as I hope you do, to share something about your faith with a friend, with someone maybe you've even just met, they actually hear the voice of Christ through you. You're the teachers. We are the teachers. It's not me. It's not the person standing up here. If it's with the power that the ascended prophet Jesus wants us to have and gives us, it's all of us. In Matthew, Jesus called John the Baptist the greatest prophet in history. But then he says, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. He's saying that about you right now. Whatever your circumstances, however inadequate you feel to being able to teach, to being able to share the gospel with someone, he's saying you are greater than John the Baptist. Do you feel ready to witness to the truth of who Jesus is? Would you say that you have a powerful prophetic ministry? Well, if you could not say yes to that, or if you'd just rather not answer those questions, then I'm happy to let you know it's not about you. In Luke 24, Jesus opened the minds of the apostles so they could understand the scriptures. And the best way to sum that up is to say that he showed them the Bible wasn't about them. That the whole Bible is about Jesus. It's not a morality tale in which we have to try harder to be like heroic figures such as Abraham or Moses or David. Paul says that we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And when you grasp that, that it's about Jesus and not about you, you become part of this prophetic ministry he calls every one of us to. You are my witnesses. His ministry as the ascended prophet continues through us. Maybe the most amazing story about the ascension in the whole Bible is in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is about to be killed. Stephen was one of the early church leaders, and he had preached the gospel, he had put himself at great risk, and they were going to stone him to death. And as that's about to happen, we read that he suddenly saw the glory of God and Jesus Christ at God's right hand. Stephen caught sight of the ascension, and he says, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He says that as he's being stoned to death. And he goes on. He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And he falls to his knees and says, Lord, receive my spirit. And he dies. Where did Stephen get that kind of power? Where did he get a peace that surpasses any understanding in the face of such violence, such threat? Where did he get that extraordinary spirit of forgiveness? 
Well, he might have known that Jesus was the Savior of the Ascension, the Ascended Priest, his advocate standing before the Father, that what the Father sees now when he looks at him and at us is the beauty of Jesus. On earth, they were saying, Stephen, you're a failure and we hate you, but he knew better because Jesus was his advocate. On earth, they were saying that he was condemned, that he was nothing, but he knew better because he knew that in heaven, with God, he was vindicated. He was innocent and accepted and beautiful to the Father. Do you feel like a failure this morning? Do you feel condemned? In some way, do you feel like God is not with you or for you? Are you a Christian? Do you believe in the ascension? To the degree that you understand that Jesus is your advocate before the Father and that you are perfect in his eyes in Christ, only to that extent will you find the peace, will you have the hope that will enable you to get through any challenge you encounter in life. People won't be able to make you hate them, no matter what they've done to you. You will have the power that Jesus promises as you see him as the ascended Christ. Stephen saw the ascension. I'm not saying all of us are going to get that kind of incredible vision, but to some degree, you've got to have it now, or you won't be able to go out in the world and experience the life and power of Jesus. When we see Jesus ascended, we see him as fully God and fully human. We need both. You can think of the Church of Our Lady here in Guelph. We're used to it. We drive past it without even looking up and appreciating it. But the Church of Our Lady is a gorgeous building, architecturally outstanding, majestic. Did you know there used to be a law that nothing in Guelph could be taller than the Church of Our Lady? And there's still a bylaw in effect that ensures that views of the church are not obstructed. In a similar way, we need to keep the glory and beauty of Jesus in view. Now, if you were to walk up the hill to Church of Our Lady, you would find a little garden called the Garden of Grace. It's a place that's set aside for anyone who wants to mourn the death of a baby or a child. And there's a statue in that garden of an angel grieving over a crib. And opposite, there's another statue, a statue of Jesus holding a baby in his arms. So we have the majesty of Church of Our Lady, the beauty, the grandeur, and we have a garden. Jesus is not unable to sympathize with our weakness. He knows our pain. He is familiar with suffering. All of this points us to God in heaven. 
And the ascension shows us that Jesus is both fully God and so able to save us and fully human and so able to love us and know us. And he opens the way for us into the presence of God. And it's out of that peace and power that we are his witnesses. I love that moment where the apostles are looking up in the sky and the angels come along and they're just confused and amazed. And my prayer for all of us is that as we are invited by God to look up, not to look down at the small circumstances of our lives, not to dwell there anyway, as we are invited to look up, that we will see Jesus high and lifted up, our ascended king, our ascended priest, and our ascended prophet. And there's so much more we can say about how we're called to be witnesses. But I want uh, to let a video do the talking about that, since I don't have time. And the video's two minutes and 45 seconds, which is just about right. Some of you have heard of Urbana, a missions conference put on by InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. It's happening again this year. And if you are a student or a young adult, um, I encourage you to consider how you could position yourself to better hear the call of Jesus to be his witness in whatever life he's leading you into, whatever career, whatever place you're going to live, whatever job you'll have, whoever you'll be with. So let's watch this video, and it's for all of us, really, because all of us are called to that. Those of you who are younger have decisions that some of us who are older no longer have the luxury of, but all of us are called to this. So let's watch this now. 